So if you would, turn into the Confession, chapter 2, paragraph 1. And in our Bibles, we'll be bouncing all over the place. So, um, As you've probably seen, we're beginning in chapter 2, having talked about our doctrine of Scripture. We move to try and confess the God that we worship. And I'm struck, but there's an illustration I heard a pastor use one time that I think is really striking. He talked about, you know, trying to catch Niagara Falls in a thimble. And you could think of uh, someone trying a pencil sketch and capture the beauty of a nebula. And in some sense, it feels like folly. Like, (laughs) how could we even dare to do this? But... God not only being infinitely greater than Niagara Falls and our tools being infinitely weaker than a thimble, we're more intimidated by the task, yet our God has disclosed who He is. And He's disclosed who He is in two things. One of which we talked about last several weeks, a Scripture, but He's also revealed Himself in creation. And we can go to Psalm 19 where we see both of them. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. We can see in Romans 1 that His invisible attributes, namely His internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so His attributes are revealed in the things that have been made. We see in Scripture, we see that the Ten Commandments are written in the finger of God. We see in Romans 3 that it's to the Jews that the oracles of God have been entrusted. We all know 2 Timothy 3.16. We've heard it multiple times the last several weeks. That Scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1 is also a very wonderful chapter on how God is communicated to us in His Word. But I want to pause and reflect on something this means that we don't think about. Infinite God communicating to us. By definition, by necessity, God has to condescend to our level to communicate to us anything that we can understand. If God were just to proclaim Him as He is, without any condescension, we would not understand it. We could not relate to Him. Why? Because He is fundamentally different than us. Uh, Many modern theologians want to try and talk about who God is by reasoning from us to God. Well, we're like this, so God must be like this. The older theologians understood that He is high and lifted up. And so I can't start from what I'm like to reason to what God is like. I have to start with what He has said, what He has shown. And even if I can't understand it, that's who He is. That's what He's like. A few Scriptures that come to mind in Job 33.14, for He speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. 1 Kings 8.27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? The immensity of the God that we worship. John 21-25 is an interesting text with this idea. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, 
I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. God is more vast than we can ever fully comprehend. And to get to a finer point, Caleb has referenced Calvin a few times where Calvin says, for who even of slight intelligence does not understand as a nurse, as nurses commonly do with infants, God is wont in a measure to lisp in speaking to us. Thus, such forms of speaking do not so much express clearly that God is like as accommodate, or what God is like, as accommodate the knowledge of Him to our slight capacity. To do this, He must descend far beneath His loftiness. Again, all He's saying is that God uh, descends to our level to communicate anything about Himself that we can understand. And this means there has to be some care taken with all the things that Scripture says about who He is. I think an easy example is that there are a multitude of scriptures that describe God as having physical body parts, right? We see that God is described as having a face and a head and a back in Exodus 33, 20 through 23. We see that he has eyes and eyelids in the Psalms and in Hebrews. He's described as having a mouth and an arm, a finger where he wrote the Ten Commandments by the finger of God. But we know that God literally does not have a finger, a fleshy appendage with bone and muscle in it. He does not have a gelatinous orb called an eye. He doesn't have a flesh cover, eyelids. How do we know this? Why do we know that God does not have these physical body parts? Nancy. Yes, because he's spirit. And we see this in John 4.24. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Firstborn of all creation. 1 Timothy 1.17. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible. The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we're forced right away to understand that one, the language can be abused to communicate something not intended to be communicated. But we also want to be careful to say that it doesn't mean anything. Like God chose to communicate this way for a purpose. And as we go on, we're going to see that God also describes Himself doing human actions, investigating, intending, remembering, resting, working, seeing, smelling, repenting. God describes Himself doing these human actions. We also see He describes Himself holding human offices. Bridegroom, father, judge, lawgiver, king, architect, gardener, shepherd, warrior, physician. We believe these are also anthropomorphisms. These are God bringing Himself down to our level to communicate something to us. And we're going to argue, especially later on, that the human emotions that God also describes Himself with fall in a similar vein. Rejoicing, loathing, loving, jealous, and provoked regret. So, coming to this, we might get to, well, if God has to condescend Himself to our level to communicate anything, what can we really say about God? Well, for one, we do want to affirm, you can say everything that He says about Himself. Even if we understand there's a danger 
in misinterpreting what he's revealed about himself, but also bringing ourselves to the point of our study this morning. Your elders confess what we see in chapter 2, paragraph 1. The Lord our God is but one, live, one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of Himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory, most loving, most, er, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments." hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And this is our attempt to describe God as He is to the best of our ability. Now granted, there are a lot of words here, and what I want to point out a few things that might be helpful in your study of this. If you're using an older version, the semicolons are helpful because the semicolons will separate different ideas. And with that, I'm outlining our study by this. Sam Waldron gives titles to each of these sections. We're looking at the singularity of God, the independence of God, the incomprehensibility of God, the spirituality, immateriality of God, the infinity of God, the sovereignty of God, the love of God, and the justice of God. Now, I don't intend to cover all that today. We'll get as far as we get and see what happens. So beginning with the singularity of God, and if we're going by the semicolons, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God. It's probably the simplest statement in this paragraph, probably the one that requires the least amount of explanation, but... Declaration of our monotheistic faith. There is only one God who lives. One God who is there. How do we know this? How do we know this? He tells us, but where? Deuteronomy 6.4, right? Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Probably among the most famous texts for this. What other texts? 1 Corinthians 8.4? Yes. Yes. And even beyond that, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's a few other wonderful texts. I don't remember how many of these I copied from the footnotes, but... One I always loved was Isaiah 43.10. Because they believe there's all kinds of gods that have created one after another. But Isaiah 43.10 says, 
You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. One God, none before, none after. And we're going to be looking at this verse through a few different lenses, but Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, there's only God. No one else. And remembering that Moses is writing this in a context where there's a God for everything under the sun and all these gods created different things, Moses writes, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we we would be remiss to overlook the apologetic impact of that. That Moses is declaring, no... Not all these pagan deities that created all these different things. There is one God who created all things. So, the Lord our God is but one only living true God. Concerning the independence of God, we see in the confession, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection. I think the modern language uses the word essence. But... uh, This is why I sent you the R.C. Sproul video to try and explain what the word subsistence means, why we would use this word, especially as opposed to the word existence. And he went into some of the Latin. I don't know if I'm inclined to do that, but it's helpful. The whole point is that there is no potentiality in God. There is no becoming in God. He is. That's the whole reason for avoiding the word existence and using the word subsistence. That he is. So, in our present paragraph, the one subsistence of God is simply used as, a synonymous, as synonymous with the one being of God. That he, is, that he is in and of himself. There's nothing that causes God to be. What scriptures would come to mind if we were to defend that idea. That there is no cause to God. He is, well, he is. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. And, yeah, the burning bush and his name that he reveals. He says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And not only is his name a powerful statement about the independence of God, but the burning bush. We struggle with illustrations when it comes to who God is and what He's like. But if you want an illustration of the aseity of God, the, the from-himselfness, the uh, self-existing part of God, the burning bush is an excellent example. Why? Because when you're burning things, the fire's consuming things. That's why when you're fighting a forest fire, people will burn around it so that by the time the fire gets there, there's nothing to consume and the fire's done. But what are we seeing with the burning bush? We see a fire that's not consuming anything, but continues to burn. In other words, the fire is self-sufficient. It's self-sustaining. And I think this is a potent image, a picture of what God is like. That he is a fire that does not consume or does not need to consume. 
we can go back to Genesis 1. There is no explanation of God. In the beginning, God. He is there. We're not offered any origin story for God. He just is. Isaiah 48, 12 says, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. And I use that word, aseity. This, if you're reading systematic theologies, you're going to come into this word. It means from self. And this is what we confess about our God, that he is self-existent, reliant on no one. He does not depend on anything for his being, but in fact is the source of being for everything that exists. Wonderful text for this idea, Acts 17.25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything from us. He's independent. Going back to Colossians 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The end of Romans 11. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Supreme, independent, no need of anything. Concerning the incomprehensibility of God, we see in the confession, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. This, this might be helpful to explain a few things. By comprehensible, we don't mean uh, understandable in any way. When we say we comprehend something, we're claiming a kind of fullness of our understanding. If I comprehend something, I, I get what it's all about, and I really understand it down to its roots. And if you... You can say well, there's a complete understanding, a comprehensive understanding of it. You hear the C-O-M prefix. That's not possible with God from, for us. It is possible with him, and that's why the, the confession states that he knows himself fully and completely, which is important to say because we're not saying God's irrational. We're not saying that God is nonsense. We're saying he is sense and reason, but at a level we cannot reach, we cannot attain to. So while God is incomprehensible to us, this does not mean that all that he is is totally unknowable. He has given us his word as self-disclosure and has most fully revealed himself in the incarnation of God the Son in Jesus Christ. And there are many texts we can look to that talk about this incomprehensibility of God. As much as he reveals himself to us, there are things that are beyond us. Job 11. There's some really interesting things in Job about who God is. Um, Job 11, 7 through 9. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. This is a 
wonderfully poetic picture of what God is, who God is. Psalm 139, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One of the images in those lectures I sent you, like talking about unfathomable, and a fathom is a measurement of how deep the waters go. And they used to tie knots in a rope, and they would measure the distance between the knots, and they could let the rope go down, and they would know by how many knots, or how many knots went down how deep the water was. And if, you, if we think of God as unfathomable, why can we not reach the depths of who God is? There's two problems. One is my equipment is insufficient for the task. I cannot find a long enough rope to tie enough knots to reach the depths. But then the second and more important point is there is no bottom. There's no bottom by which I can let this rope go down far enough that it's going to stop and I can measure who God is. He's infinite. And just for a little bit of application, I really believe that this concept, the incomprehensibility of God, I really think that this is the most offensive thing to the cults, to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Why do they deviate from Trinitarian doctrine? Well, they can't understand it. They want a God that they can't understand. And they've made for themselves a God that they can't understand. Lorenzo Snow, the sixth prophet of the Mormon church, says, as man is, now God once was. As God, is, as God now is, man may be. This is a comprehensible God. God is of the same kind of creature as us. There is a fathom bit that we can get to the bottom of. Because their gods are finite. They want a God to understand, and they've made a God that they can understand. They have what they wanted. But in Psalm 50, this text is so interesting to me. <clears throat> you give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. The wicked think that God is like them. And there's a sense in which we're like him in the image of God sense. But there are a multitude of ways in which we are not like God. He's a fundamentally different being than we are. If a God is presented to us that is like us, just better, or perhaps seen as part of the same genus or family and organism classification, we are talking about a fundamentally different God than the God of the Bible. While we look at angels and are tempted to marvel, we see this in Scripture. Those that see angels, they're tempted to worship. But an angel has more in common with a dung beetle than an angel has in common with God. Why? Because both an angel and a dung beetle are creature. Both of them are created. Both of them are finite. And God is creator, not creature, infinite, in no way finite. 
Put more forcefully, a God that I can comprehend is not worth my time, not worth your time. If you want a God worthy of your worship, you want a God greater than you can ever understand. Even with a perfect mind and body. Anselm is known in theological circles for what's called the ontological argument for the existence of God. There's classic arguments for the existence of God if you study apologetics. And Anselm's argument, I was never impressed with because I guess I'll just read it because I don't know if I can summarize it well. (laughs) Um, It is a conceptual truth, or so to speak, true by definition, that God is a being than which none greater can be imagined. That is, the greatest possible being that can be imagined. Premise two, God exists as an idea in the mind. Premise three, a being that exists as an idea in the mind and in reality is, other things being equal, greater than a being that exists only as an idea in the mind. Premise four, thus if God exists only as an idea in the mind, then we can imagine something that is greater than God, that is, greatest possible being that does exist. Premise five, but we cannot imagine something that is greater than God, for it is a contradiction to suppose that we can imagine a being greater than the greatest possible being that can be imagined. Premise six, therefore God exists. I'm not here to tell you it's a a useful argument (laughs) that you're going to present this to atheists and they're just going to weep tears of joy and say, how how could I have been so stupid? (laughs) That's not my point in bringing this up. What I find beautiful in this, though, is just even reflecting on God is, he says God is the greatest being that can be conceived. I would want to edit that and say God is greater than anything I can conceive. What I'm getting at is, like, when when I was younger and I heard this argument, I'm like, no one's going to be convinced by this. Like, see, we have some pretty wild imaginations. Look at Tolkien, and look at Lewis, look at Rowling, and Scott Card, and so many wonderful world builders who can come up with fantastic places and characters that we just want to live in, Uh, our imaginations are carried away, surely this argument that God is the greatest thing that can be conceived is not going to be convincing to anybody. But then I reflect on it more, and just a little detour with me. You've heard of Build-A-Bear workshops. Imagine now we're going to a -A Build-A-God workshop. And this place... You've never seen anything like it. There's levers and pulleys and all kinds of parts. You can craft whatever God you want. And you have unlimited imaginative capacity. You can pull in other people. You can do all kinds of research. And your God will actually exist, as opposed to the idols. And let's say you do it. And you make the best possible God that you could possibly think of. And I would suggest that you compare that with the God of the Bible and it will be repulsive. What I'm getting at is we cannot imagine a being greater than God. He is greater than if I just spent all my time with a pen and paper and I, what could God, what could a wonderful God be like? And I just wrote down everything I could think of. I can't come up with something better than the God who is. Another way to word this, maybe a more helpful way to word this, um, A part of the beauty of the incomprehensibility of God is that you will never fully know how great he is. Never, ever, ever. You'll never fully know his greatness, his goodness, his love. 
and I mean even in eternity, you will not fully know it. We'll be, con- we'll be continually coming to a greater understanding, but we'll never fully know it. He will always be incomprehensible. Again, why? We are creature. He is creator. That will never change. We will always be creature. He will always be creator. He will always exist on a higher plane. And even in our perfected bodies, with our perfected minds and sin wiped away, we'll know God in a way we can't even begin to understand now, but it won't be full. And it'll never be full. And so, this brings us, I think, back to Romans 11, the doxology that's there. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Answer, nobody. Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Answer again, nobody. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. If we want to continue thinking about incomprehensibility, the next section really brings us into incomprehensibility. The next section is the spirituality of God. The immateriality of God. And the confession says that God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which which no man can approach unto. And here we come to two of the most controversial doctrines in this chapter. That God is simple without parts. That He is impassable without passions. And there are a lot of people, a lot of Reformed people, that aren't crazy about these doctrines. Are you, you want... I just, when you say controversial... Yes. No, no, and that's helpful to say. Yeah. Um, if you listen to the lectures, Dalazal talked about when he wrote about impassibility and he critiqued Calvin on it and he thought this was just a cold Calvinistic doctrine that God has no passions. Then he realized as he did more study that this was nothing unique to Calvin. Pretty much everyone in church history says this. And he's drawing from Catholic sources, he's drawing from Protestant sources, Dolezal is. Like, when I say controversial, I mean in the modern church. It's controversial. I don't mean throughout church history. That's helpful to add. So, first thing I want to point out is these things are under the umbrella of immateriality. Because God is spirit, because He's immaterial, He has no body, parts, or passions. So that's part of the logic here. He doesn't have a body like us, so he doesn't have parts like us, and he doesn't have passions like us. So, divine simplicity is the idea that God is not complex at all. There are no parts to him. And you don't take a little father, pour it in a pot, little son, pour it in a pot, little Holy Spirit in a pot, stir it up, cook for three hours, and you get God. That's not a helpful way God for multiple reasons. <laughs> um, you don't take a gallon of love with a teaspoon of wrath and some omniscience sprinkled on top and bake for an hour. 
and get God. Again, not a helpful way to think about God. John 1, 5, 1 John, 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. <clears throat> and there are many commenters that want to point at the purity here. There's no variation or shadow of turning as we swear. In God, there is purity of essence. No division. No parts. Uh, Calvin says about this text in 1 John 1.5, but he calls God light and says that he is in the light. Such expressions are not to be too strictly taken. Why Satan is called the prince of darkness is sufficiently evident. When, therefore, God, on the other hand, is called the father of light and also light, we first understand that there is nothing in him but what is bright, pure, and unalloyed. Unmixed. And secondly, that he makes all things so manifest by his brightness that he suffers nothing vicious or perverted, no spots or filth, no hypocrisy or fraud to lie hid. But what I'm getting at is Calvin and many others go to a text like this and say that God is unalloyed. No divisions, no parts. And just to, if you didn't listen to the lectures, just to give you an idea of what we're talking about here, consider my bike. It's a complex thing. Lots of parts. And when you look at the parts, it's made up of things that are not the bike. The handlebars by themselves are not the bike. The tires by themselves are not the bike. All the little screws, all the rubber, all that, they are not the bike. It only becomes the bike when they're all put together. In other words, the bike is dependent on things that are not the bike to be a bike. And this is the big effort in talking about the simplicity of God. Because if we say God has parts, we're saying God is made up of things that are not God. That he's only God when all the parts are brought together. This is one of the big problems with partialism, like the idea that 33% of God is the Father, 33% of God is the Son, 33% is the Spirit. If you say that, you're saying the Father is not God. You're saying the Son is not God. You're saying the Holy Spirit is not God. Because they're only God when they're all together. And yet the Scriptures affirm that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So, when we affirm God's simplicity, we're saying God is not dependent on anything outside of him to be him. It might be helpful, like, God is not wise because he read in a book outside of himself how to be wise and added that part to himself. He's wise because he is wisdom. He's not loving because he observed love outside of himself and added that part to himself. He is love. And furthermore, I, I found this to be helpful, thinking about David. In David, you can find strength, you can find wisdom, you can find affection, but oftentimes you can find them without all of them being together, right? Right? And this is why we conceive of the attributes as different parts. Because I can be strong while being foolish. 
I can be strong while lacking wisdom. And so we think of strength and wisdom as different things. But in God, He is incapable of being strong without wisdom. He's incapable of being wise without love. In everything He does, He is the fullness of who He is. And I've mentioned this text so many times in times past. What really clicked with me with this is Romans 3. When we have this big problem of like, well, how are those who were formerly God's people saved by Christ's sacrifice? For there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what, what was so helpful in this, like I've told you before, I, I heard growing up that instead of being just, God was loving on the cross. And so many people speak this way, that if God were perfectly just, he would just send us all to hell, but instead God put a blanket over his justice so that he could show us mercy. And thank God for that. Like, if he didn't, if he didn't like, you know, shove his justice in a basket and hide it for a little bit, then we'd all be in hell. And as nobody says it like that, <laughs> but that's what, that's what it means if you're going to communicate that way. But this text that says that he is just and the justifier. That his justification is just. In other words, his mercy is just. When he shows mercy on us, he's not bending the rules of justice. He's perfectly just in the mercy that he shows his people by bestowing grace on them in salvation. I was struck in my reading, coming to Exodus 34. And God is going to reveal Himself to Moses. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God most gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And what strikes me here is, what is he proclaiming to Moses? I know you, I didn't give you time to look at it. Exodus 34, verse 5. He's going to proclaim the name, singular, of the Lord. And then what comes out of his mouth? A multitude of descriptors of who he is. I think we see something of the simplicity of God here. In this one name, we get mercy, grace, steadfastness, love, justice. All of these things are bound up in this name of the Lord. We better stop. Are there... Is there anything that I can attempt to clarify? <laughs> Any questions or added comments that you want to make?
Mm -hmm. This is why it is so important in our confessional language, in the Athanasian Creed, and everything. He added to himself a human nature that is unmixed with his divine nature. So that the divine nature is unchanged even in the incarnation. He added to himself a human nature. And what does this mean on an experiential level? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's what we, we're always talking about, and that's why these creeds and confessions are meant to guard the mystery. Yes. I don't know how God can add to himself a human nature. Right. But right. that's why those specific words are used, that he's not mixed. We don't know how that is. Yes. We don't know how that's accomplished. Yes. Yes. Right. And you talk about God being simple and not complex, but God created a very complex world. This world's made up of parts. We're made up of parts. Yes. And God in his grace communicates by language that has parts in it. Yes, yes. Well, and even with that ridiculous illustration of the build a God workshop. Why can we never build a God greater than God? Why? We're complex beings. We cannot think simply. I can't relate to simple. Everything around me is complex. And at the Build a God workshop, I'm adding parts. <laughs> I'm building a complex God. He cannot compare to the God who is. So, this just gets back to the incomprehensibility of God. He is high and lifted up. Unsearchable to his depths. Unreachable. Fundamentally different in profound and wonderful ways. In ways that we can't even articulate. So, I think we'll stop there and pick up with impassibility next week. Let's pray.